Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Britain is a Nation of. The podcast where we explore British behaviour by unpacking statistics to understand the little differences and similarities between us all. I'm Stuart Henderson, Head of News at Yahoo. And I'm Matilda Long, Journalist at Yahoo. I'm Victoria Valazir, Data Journalist at YouGov. And this week, we're talking drugs in British culture. How many of us would take cocaine if it were legal? Whether we would try microdosing, And how many Brits support the legalisation of cannabis? And we are joined by returning expert Ian Hamilton a lecturer in mental health and addiction at the University of York. Welcome back, Ian. Thank you very much. Right, I'll kick off today uh, with a sort of so-called soft drug question. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you legalise cannabis? Victoria. Uh, From what I know about this, and this is important to say, I'm now speaking as Victoria and not as a representative of (laughs) Hugo. Um, But yes, as far as I understand, it seems like a good shout. I think that I tend to agree, um, possibly because when something's legal, you can regulate it more effectively. I, from what I understand, that's, you know, a big, a big issue with drugs is that it's not regulated industry. So can you make it safer if it's brought under kind of government control? Maybe. That's my instinct to that question. And as a complete shocker, I'm going to agree with those two. <laughs> the expert says yes. <laughs> says yes. Well, I, I probably regard myself as relatively liberal on, on uh, most social issues. Uh, I'm not, I don't feel quite comfortable to say yes as, as definitively as you guys, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think... I think that part of me stems from the status quo element. I, I quite like the status quo and I'm also always slightly fearful of unintended consequences. And when it involves any drug, then I would be slightly fearful of that. I feel for me, if alcohol was illegal, I'd probably mm. have the same answer to alcohol as well. Mm. Um, so it does feel slightly odd to have a slightly more conservative mm. view. But When I, you say unintended consequences, are there any that you've seen in places that have more lax laws on um, I think well, I was kind of thinking about it a little no, not in terms of contemporary sort of mm-hmm. other, other countries I think particularly with Canada I think that would be really interesting to watch as a case study it's mm-hmm. a very sort of similar uh, sort of um, culture to ours and one would assume that a lot of parallels could be drawn it would appear they're making an awful lot of money out of it uh, and hopefully some of that money is going back into supporting mental health and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff and propping up the tax system so I guess that there's some benefits there but it was kind of what um, after our um, conversation on this podcast about um, alcohol in uh, season one actually that made me think about it a little more. Ian you talked a lot about how the, the severity of the problem with alcohol is not confined to, but it's really, really problematic for sort of mm. say, three percent of of drinkers called mm. create, yeah, are really, really addicted and stuff. Yeah. And it feels to me that I could see a situation where cannabis would quite be quite similar. Mm-hmm. And would I be happy supporting that kind of let's legalize it and mm. possibly create the same problem? Now I know problems exist, but mm. it seems slightly counterintuitive to me. And but you mentioned the you know the small percentage of people who are the huge consumers, which is the case with alcohol. Do you think that those people in the UK don't already smoke cannabis? I don't know is the answer. Mm. So I just don't know. And, and maybe perhaps one of the reasons they don't smoke more cannabis, we don't. there may be many reasons why they don't smoke mm. more cannabis. One of them may be because it's illegal. 
we yeah, don't know that. Um, but yeah. that is part of the problem. There's so many unknowns. Mm -hmm. That's well, one of the reasons why I'm not happy. One thing, one thing I was reading uh, this morning, which Ian, you might be able to confirm, was about how in places where marijuana has been legalized, it hasn't necessarily shown a significant increase in people who didn't take it before then taking it. So it's not like suddenly mm. everyone's going and buying it. But among current users, they tend to take more when it mm. is legalized. So Ooh. that would back up what you just said. So if you if you already take cannabis when it's illegal, you will take significantly more when it's legalized. But if you don't take cannabis now that when while it's illegal, it's unlikely that legality will change your mind. Yeah. Does that sound right? I think, you know, that, that sort of data is fairly reliable because you can just rely on sales um, in US states and Canada. Yeah. The difficulty is with uh, Stuart's point with unintended consequences mm. is the time lag to those. Right. So already uh, people who are in favor of regulation are jumping on the fact there's been no increases in psychosis or mm. other health related problems. But in truth, that'll take five to 10 years. Yeah, of course. Um, so the question is do we wait for five to 10 years in the UK to see mm. what the Americans? Um, find and let them experiment on their population mm. um, or do we go for a regulated model in the UK and perhaps um, test that out in one of the regions in Scotland, uh, Ireland, Wales or England? That's quite interesting. Do you know, are, are Scottish people, I, my assumption is they're slightly more liberal and perhaps more uh, likely to support legalisation. Do you know that? Well, I'm not sure. The, the difficulty is, although it's a devolved government, the, the um, Home Office, who's responsible for drug policy, retain the final say. Mm. Um, so it doesn't really matter what the Scottish people want. <laughs> it's uh, the Home <laughs> Secretary who'll decide what they're going to get. That brings me on quite neatly onto uh, a quite an interesting uh, fact I found about while doing some research for this. And it came off the back of a quote by Barack Obama, uh, which he gave to The New Yorker in 2014. And he said, uh, as has been well documented, I smoked pot as a kid and I view it as a bad habit and a vice. Not very different from the cigarettes that I smoked as a young person up through a big chunk of my adult life. I don't think it is more dangerous than alcohol. He went on to say that we should not be locking up kids or individual users for long stretches of jail time when some of the folks who are writing those laws have probably done the same thing. And it made me have a little think about <laughs> our MPs. Mm. Yeah. Would you like to guess how many MPs across England, Scotland, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland, as far as I'm aware, have admitted smoking marijuana? Out of the six hundred or so, uh, I think some of them are, are old MPs no longer. But so, but I mean, clearly, we've only been talking about this in the last ten years or so. So I think mm. they're all within the like the last decade. <laughs> I can't think. I can't remember any examples. Right. Have, have admitted. I've to admitted. Smoke, I, will I was going to say about five. <laughs> I will tell you, it's thirty-seven MPs. Oh, said oh wait, but this out. is ads, so they've just said it rather than they were mm. asked. No, it, so they've come out and said, and right. said yes, oh, okay, that's as, to, right. as part of contributing to the debate, I guess. Uh, 37 MPs, which includes 13 members of the cabinet and sort of four members of the Scottish cabinet. Uh, and most interestingly, one first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, yeah. and two home secretaries. So two home secretaries who are in charge of drug policy mm -hmm. have admitted smoking marijuana, which is illegal. Right. It's that is bonkers. What, what is the it? support for legalisation in there? So judging by how, you know, I, I think there was a, a recent um, written statement that said, you know, the government has absolutely no intention of, of reclassifying marijuana, which is currently class B. Um, so YouGov uh, on the bus asked uh, uh, the British public to what extent they would support or oppose legalisation of cannabis in the UK. 43% said they would support it and 41% they would oppose it. Mm. So there was a majority according to this poll in the UK for a softened stance on 
marijuana. It's worth saying, so I just looked into those results as well on the back of what you said about Scotland. Uh, if you break it down by region, 58% of Scots mm. support compared to 50% in London. That's the second highest. 45% in the north, uh, 39% in the Midlands and Wales and 40% in the rest of the South. So quite Ooh. a stark difference. So 40% in the South, basically 60% in Scotland. Mm. So it breaks down quite with, yeah, quite a lot of differences regionally. That's interesting. The, the other, I think, interesting was how Brits view cannabis in terms of its relationship to other drugs, mm-hmm. including tobacco and alcohol. And I'd like to ask your opinion on this in a minute, Ian, as well. So they were asked to sort of um, rate the following drugs as, as how harmful they were. It included heroin and cocaine, which obviously uh, the UK um, public felt were the most harmful but then the third most harmful out of those they asked was tobacco with um 93 percent of brits saying they felt tobacco was harmful uh, and then alcohol with 83 percent, and then cannabis with just 62 percent. that is hugely lower yeah than the number of people yeah, who view um now i guess the two questions i was in is is cannabis significantly less harmful? Do we do we know enough about it to be that prescriptive about it? Mm-hmm. And if not, why do we? Why do our parliamentarians have such a downer on <laughs> making? That's not why are they such bad. squares? Uh, <laughs> uh, but, do, 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 is there any research into which is the more of the more dangerous of those three drugs? There, there is. So to give you an idea of numbers, you would need to prevent twenty thousand young people ever using cannabis to prevent one case of psychosis. Right. Now, clearly, the risks for developing cirrhosis of the liver, mm-hmm. um, lung cancer as a result of smoking, the ratio is far lower than that. Uh, so that, that gives, to my mind, that's the easiest way of thinking about mm-hmm. the risks mm, related yeah, to cannabis. I was trying to find like number of deaths and stuff, but that seems quite... Well, the only way you'll die from using cannabis is if it falls on your head and it's yeah. heavy enough. But, um, <laughs> so nobody's... In saying that, I mean, I'm being a bit flippant because, of course, with any psychoactive drug, it alters judgment. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you can die as a result of using cannabis if you're driving a car and you uh, call something out wrongly. Um, you know, your judgment mm. is impaired potentially. I think the thing that gets forgotten in this country is culturally we're wedded to when we roll a spliff, uh, a tobacco joint, uh, a cannabis joint, we use tobacco in it. Mm. Unlike our American uh, counterparts, who that's quite a rare thing to do. Really? Yeah, it's really I didn't rare. Know that. So only, I think it's less than one in 10 young people in the US would use. Uh, tobacco and cannabis together oh, but in the UK no we've got this inherited culture of always nearly virtually always using tobacco with cannabis mm. where is that inherited from I don't know I don't know where it started I, I guess because originally back in the 60s um, it was mainly resin that was available and right. in order to combust resin you need an agent and that agent okay. was tobacco um, so you need something to create the smoke to mm-hmm. inhale um, it's almost completely unnecessary now because most people use grass or skunk whatever you want to call it which mm. is readily combustible on its own okay. um, so it makes that redundant but the habit persists mm. and what many young people uh, don't realise is that they're actually tobacco dependent rather than cannabis dependent mm. so they would class themselves as non-smokers <laughs> but they're having two or three uh, joints a day Wow, that's, that's extraordinary. So Hadn't mm. never thought of that. And um, I know in the US you can now buy um, cannabis things for your vape. Yeah. So then you're not wow. having you're not having any of the any of the nicotine. No. We're becoming so advanced as a society. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. I guess on this question of it being harmful, it's kind of 
I guess the, the, the unsaid part of that question is who is it harmful to? Because I'm just thinking about right, what you were saying about cannabis-related deaths being mm. uncommon. And I guess you're saying psychosis is the most, yeah. the biggest sort of risk. Um, in essence, that seems like more of a harm to yourself as a person than necessarily to society. Is that true in terms of alcohol and tobacco? The health risks associated with that are you know, very physical mm. and can have a huge cost to the healthcare system and therefore to society. Well, arguably cannabis seems like something which is more harmful to the individual than necessarily costs society a lot of money to treat. Like, is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't downplay um, the risks with cannabis because right. if you do develop psychosis, that's a really nasty mental illness to get. Yeah. But I think it's important to remember that it's rare, mm. extremely rare. Um, and a bit like, you know, some of the conversations around knife crime, we get lost in... Uh, the top line of something. Mm. Um, so there's been a lot of concentration on cannabis psychosis. Uh, my own view is that it's a somewhat dodgy diagnosis. I think we have, if if we scrutinise it, it's quite a difficult one to have confidence in. Right. So I think there's an association. It's not causal, for instance, okay. uh, between smoking cannabis yeah, and, having, and developing yeah, psychosis. Yeah, that's interesting. So why is that so prevalent? Why is that so ingrained in how we view? Callis and, and THC and all that. Well, I, I think some of it is born out of racism. Um, mm. So it's mainly young black men who populate um, acute psychiatric wards over the last 30 years mm. with uh, problems with psychosis. And our view of young black men is they're dangerous. Mm. Um, yep. And we've overplayed the role. So they're not only using cannabis, they're using alcohol, they're using tobacco, even mm -hmm. if it's just in a joint. So interestingly, the research has moved on. We now think that tobacco may play, play a role in psychosis. Oh, so wow. in truth, if, we're, if I'm honest about it, we don't have a clue. We don't know <laughs> what is causing psychosis. Mm -hmm. so to, play, um, to, to play complete devil's advocate, then, if we don't know, why would, why would you support legalizing something that we just don't know about? Well, because you've got the opportunity to make it safer. One, one of the problems is the potency of cannabis. Mm. So, as we all know, it's mm. kind of got stronger. Um, and it's not just a case of uh, that it's got stronger, but the choice mm. is limited. So, unlike you were saying, Matilda, yeah. in America, where you maybe have blunts, uh, vapes, etc., in here you've got skunk or nothing. Mm. It's true. Um, so, it's like having whiskey or nothing. And then we <laughs> wonder why people get ill, um, <laughs> and particularly naive users. Mm. Um, so, to go to the question as to why the government has such a downer on it, why do you think that is? Well, in softening the mm. stance, or, or softening the stance on cannabis, I, th I think they're they're tuned into uh, the people that vote for them. You know, mm -hmm. I, th I think um, the YouGov poll is interesting. Um, whether politicians would see that because it's definitely moved. You know, the the stance by um, the ordinary person in terms mm. of whether cannabis should, cannabis should be regulated has shifted. Mm. Um, I'm not sure politicians are tuned into that, and it is clearly you know they like any of us, I don't blame them, they'll be reading what they think is popular and what's not. Mm -hmm. it, uh, there was a, um, a, a written answer. Um, it was a question by an MP to the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, uh, which asked what assessment uh, the department had done made between the links between cannabis use and mental health problems. Um, and this was answered uh, last week, 27th of February. And, they, and the answer by um, Steve Bryan was that um, the department has not made a specific assessment of the links between cannabis use and mental health problems. Mm. Mm. That seems mm. remark. I don't. What, that seems remarkable to me that 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 
assessment hasn't been made. But particularly yeah. as that's, I think, the go-to reason to not legalise yeah. cannabis yeah. in the just the kind of wider discussion. But even the Home Secretary last year um, admitted they know very little about drug use um, in this country. Mm. So we, we have... And that's why it's so good to have this YouGov data. It gives mm. us a, another glimpse, another insight into reasons, thinking. Uh, the only survey we have every year is the British Crime Survey. Mm. And bizarrely, the British Crime Survey doesn't include students. Really? <laughs> so you think, well, if, if we're going to base policy and evidence on a survey that doesn't include students, doesn't include homeless people and doesn't include prisoners, mm. then oh my God, we have a very that. limited kind of idea of who's using drugs, why they're using drugs. And fair play to Sajid Javid in saying we know so little and that's why he's instigated mm. um, the review by Carol Black, Dame Carol Black, to look at um, drug use and the policy response mm. Although, again, Sajid Javid has made it clear that's not going to look at whether mm. drugs should be legalised or not. Mm. Would you, um, when would you have an age limit if we were to um, legalise cannabis? I, I guess 18 is where I'd settle on. I mean, if it was my own kids, mm. um, I'd prefer them not to use until they're 21. Um, so, although the evidence, I think, is settling around the fact that it does... Uh, blunt educational attainment and mm. of course you know you're doing GCSEs and A-levels at those critical ages the damage isn't permanent so that's what shifted in the research recently is we now know through mm. longitudinal studies that you recover um, so your attention memory uh, ability to problem solve all returns that doesn't remain blunted mm. but you know as I say for my own kids I'd mm -hmm. prefer them to <laughs> wait until <laughs> they're 21 yeah. do as I say It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I'm going to move us from cannabis onto LSD. Mm. So have, a, have a nice time, everyone. <laughs> so I'm just going to ask a very simple question to everybody. Do you know what microdosing is? Victoria? Uh, I do, yes, because I, <laughs> I have a lot of friends who are very big advocates of microdosing. Really? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Stuart, do you know what it is? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, what's, what's your understanding of the term? I, I, yeah, I think I understand what microdosing is, although... Um, yeah, I could define it. You know, it's just yeah. taking a very small dose. Um, some people would see it as subtherapeutic dose, um, but not quite homeopathic levels. Mm. It's not trace mm. elements. It tends to be a tenth or a twelfth of a particular usual dose of a drug. Um, 
but my general indemnity waiver would be in the UK, we know very little about microdosing. Mm. In fact, worldwide, we know very little about microdosing. <laughs> yeah, we, it's interesting for you to say because, you know, this isn't an official thing. Microdosing isn't an official. No. Sounds official. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, from my kind of research online, um, it tallies with what you say, Ian, which is taking, a, it's basically taking a tenth of a normal dose of a psych- of psychoactive substance. And what that basically means is it's not enough to get high. You're not going to go on an acid trip and, you know, mm. start hallucinating. But it makes a cognitive difference. Mm. And people basically think that it improves the way that you work. Lots of people take it to improve their mood. And, you know, you're not sitting there hallucinating at your desk. But people do say that this helps with kind of concentration. So the YouGov question asked the public, would you consider using micro doses of LSD acid? Um, and 28% of people said they wouldn't rule it out. Wow, third. Which is yeah. a third. Wait, uh, what were the options given? Uh, so it's 28% of people said they wouldn't rule it out. 9% said they themselves wouldn't try it, but that it should be legal. 50%, yeah. the majority, but not a huge majority, said that they wouldn't try it and that it should remain illegal. 10% weren't sure. 2% said other. I'm not sure what that encompasses. <laughs> There's always a couple of those mystery yeah. kind of don't know and others. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> did they all know what it was then, as far as we yeah, know? Yes, so it did. It gave the, it wow. gave the kind of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know where it came from, microdosing? So I I came across this by reading that it was popular in Silicon Valley. Mm. Um, And there were some reports a couple of years ago about Tech Valley people Mm. taking tiny amounts of LSD at work. And they said it helps with problem solving and makes them more productive. Um, So there was an interview in Wired magazine um, in 2016 with a publicist for a tech company. She didn't reveal her real name, um, but she microdoses and she does it every day. Wow. And she said, it helps me think more creatively and stay focused. I manage my stress with ease and I am able to keep my perspective healthy in a way that I was unable to before. Wow. Yeah, and to go, to go back to the data, so 28% of people said they were open to the idea of microdosing, not an insignificant number. Considering considering another YouGov poll found that 13% of people have actually tried LSD, doesn't specify a dose, that's quite yeah. a big jump. Mm-hmm. So the idea of taking an amount that doesn't get you high really changes people's perspectives. It's yeah. interesting because I think it definitely plays into or I guess confirms the fact that most people when they think of drugs do think of someone just going totally overboard and they're just lying there like yeah. a vegetable. Absolutely. You know? And then if you reframe it and you say that it doesn't have to be that, mm-hmm. but you actually, what if the, the material we're talking about is the same, the substance mm. is the same, but the way that you consume it is different. Would that uh, change your mind? Yeah, I think a, a good example of that is ketamine. Yeah. So if people people say, oh, it's a horse tranquilizer. Yeah. It's, a, it's a normal painkiller for humans. Mm. It's used mm-hmm. in hospitals. Mm. And I think people i think it has a kind of reputation as being a you know a sort of studenty a bit grotty thing to do mm. but actually lots of people are given it in hospitals yeah, and yeah. wouldn't object to that i mm. should i shouldn't think so do you victoria when you say your friends use it do you yeah. get any sort of indication why they're using it what they yeah so one of my friends uses it for concentration um, um lsd yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, hey. take a bit. he also just yeah, just like very interested, particularly in so in LSD and also in magic mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I also know someone who has used magic mushrooms as an alternative to antidepressants or as a way of coming right. off antidepressants, basically. Oh, that's interesting. Um, right. okay. On which, according to this person, there is a substantial amount of research or enough for them to feel confident doing it that it wasn't going to mess them up. And to their credit, it seems to have done well. So they basically microdosed to wean um, themselves off. Yeah, to wean themselves right. off, and less and less over the course. Of of a couple of weeks and then now they don't oh. do it at all. Anymore. I was say, do they do they approach it as a 
because I think a, a conservative reaction to that might be surely the impetus is to gradually take more. Do they? Because, Why? Because um, the, there might be a perception that if it makes you feel nicer than taking slightly more might make you feel better. Better, okay. even better. Mm-hmm. So um, I think they, they dropped it? this once and then basically felt high. So the point is, as you say, like with microdosing, you don't feel high. Like it changes your behavior, as far as I understand, mm-hmm. no more than, let's say, a, a cup of coffee would make you, make you slightly more alert. You know, mm-hmm. it's not something that... And if it's to the point where you feel high and you can no longer like concentrate on your work or whatever like that that mm. then you've gone too far you know and for this person <laughs> yeah, like that quite wasn't risky. <laughs> yeah it's you're quite taking risky. lsd and you take a bit too much and go to work the consequences could be quite bad yeah. do, do they ha- I, I guess the other issue is like do they know where they're getting it from like can they be confident that <laughs> so funnily enough this person was getting it from the other guy who grows it himself <laughs> okay well, that okay. seems that so. seems relatively sensible though yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um well, <laughs> But there it's was, a difficult thing to dose, isn't it? You know, if yeah. you're mushrooms um, or even LSD, to know that you're taking a microdose rather mm. than a whacking dose, mm. as it yeah, were, yeah, yeah. Um, you need some experience, don't mm. you? You need some, you need a mate or, mm. or um, I guess you could go to Reddit. There's loads of Reddit mm. forums on mm. microdosing. There are, there are a lot of websites where people discuss this. Yeah. I think it's quite an interesting thing because it does seem to be something where, as you say, because there isn't kind of much official let's say mm. academic research mm-hmm. on it it's kind of a, a grassroots yeah, yeah. like community that yeah. within itself like mm-hmm. you'll have looked into this it seems to have done quite a bit of yeah. quote-unquote research that well, well there was actually new research into microdosing published this week we're recording in february um it was carried out at the uni university of california davis um and it was led by senior author david olson who is an assistant professor in the departments of neuroscience chemistry biochemistry and molecular medicine Um, And they tested on rats, experimented on rats, and gave them tiny doses of psychedelics. Very tiny, presumably, (laughs) because they're rats. Uh, And they found, um, and I'm quoting here, microdosing may alleviate symptoms of mood and anxiety disorders, though the potential hazards of this practice warrant further investigation. So they did, you know, your friend who says Mm -hmm. they microdose for depression, they found that that is the case. It reduced anxiety. But the hazards did include... Um, the metabolism, the rats who were microdosing put on lots of weight. Mm. <laughs> Don't know why, I'm not sure why that is at all. Um, and it did actually change the neural structure of the rats. It changed their brains. And it's not clear what the long-term effects of this would be. No, so I so, put my question for you, Ian, is yeah. are there benefits to this? What what should our attitude towards it, do you think, be? Well, I, I think um, where I'd start with this is we, we know remarkably little about depression. Mm. And we know probably as little about psychedelics or psychoactive drugs. So when those two collide, there's a lot been written, um, but I think you could probably distill that down to very little understanding. Mm-hmm. So we, I think it's good to be open. It's good to be open-minded about what works, what doesn't, what we should try, what we shouldn't. And, um, you know, depression is an extremely debilitating mm-hmm. Uh, thing to have it's no it you know it doesn't discriminate against anyone you know anyone can get depression so I I think we need to be humble in looking for new and novel ways beyond the traditional kind of pills and pharmaceutical approach to uh, treating things like depression anxiety and unlike the review you were mentioning there have been some human experiments and human studies I mean we were looking at LSD to treat bizarrely schizophrenia in the Mm. 1950s Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that, that kind of makes your mind boggle a bit. You know, <laughs> where for people who are hallucinating, give them a hallucinogenic. <laughs> yeah. um, but perhaps it had a paradoxical effect. But it was the law that interrupted that research. So we've lost ah. three to four decades mm. of intelligence on this, and we're only just coming back to it. So mm. really exciting. You know, there's definitely potential. But I think, as I say, we need to be humble about how much we actually know, despite how much has been written and mm. talked about. Do you know why it is, so the survey that I'll get onto in a, in a couple of minutes is about class A drugs. And before running it, I was looking into, you know, which drugs are classified as class A. And I was quite surprised that heroin and like crystal meth and these things are in the same bucket mm. as magic mushrooms and LSD, which, I don't know, from my perspective, seems a bit... It's magic no. mushrooms class A. Yeah. yeah. And that was only um, made illegal fairly recently, I it think. It was, yeah. It was... Um, in the 80s? 90s? Uh, I'm actually not sure. Early millennium, I think. Oh. So uh, according to the 2017 Global Drug Survey, um, out of 10,000 people who took magic mushrooms, only 0.2% actually needed emergency medical treatment, which I think is pretty low. What are, but, the, yeah, what are the levels like for other drugs? Do you know? The number of people seeking emergency treatment for magic mushrooms is 0.2. Uh, per 10,000. Per 10,000. Mm -hmm. For cannabis, it was 06 LSD 1, um, cocaine 1, amphetamines 1. Alcohol was higher. 1.3. Number of people who seek emergency treatment is higher for alcohol than cocaine. A&E on a weekend or even during a weekday now <laughs> um, is populated by people who've come on stock with alcohol. Um, according to uh, Dr. Robin Carhat-Harris, the head of psychedelic <laughs> research at Imperial College, one of the sort of compounds found in magic mushrooms uh, is similar to LSD and that mimics serotonin. But then the research into serotonin depression is such that we even don't know if serotonin does decrease depression. Yeah. We don't actually know how that works. We know we, we're unable to measure how much serotonin is in the brain. And, yeah. and as you said, there's just so much un, unknown. Yeah. And a lot of it is based on animal modeling, you know. And um, I, again, I, at the risk of repeating myself, I think, you know, we, we do kind of end up in a, a false sense of security about understanding um, or thinking we understand um, depression. So even, even the modeling of serotonin is disputed. Um, and dopamine, uh, etc. So, mm -hmm. without getting too technical, I think there's still everything's up for grabs, really. That's, <laughs> that's the easiest way of putting it. The survey I wanted to discuss is about attitudes towards Class A drugs, um, mm -hmm. which had a lot of really interesting findings. So, basically, we asked how many Britons have tried a Class A drug before, um, how many would be willing to try it if it were legal. Mm -hmm. And then there was a follow-up question. If you said you were willing to try a class, you would be willing to try a class A drug. We then listed them all and said, okay, which one? Mm. Um, <laughs> What's your favorite? And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and if you weren't, we asked why. So some of the most interesting findings were one in 11 Brits say they have already tried a class A drug. Uh, that figure rises to one in seven among 18 to 24s and 25 to 49 year olds. So that's a substantial amount, really. Um, and just one in 50 of those aged 65 and above have say that they have tried a class A drug. So quite mm -hmm. a big generational difference. People in London almost double as likely as any other region to have tried a class A drug also. So one in 20 say that they would consider trying a class A drug if it were legal. But among these, the only drugs which a majority specify that they would take are cocaine, ecstasy and LSD. So the proportion of people who've already taken cocaine and ecstasy, for example, is double the amount who say that they would if it were legal. So among those who've tried a class A drug, 50% had tried cocaine and another 20% said they would if it were legal. 
45% had tried ecstasy, another 23% said they would if they were legal. So it's ba- what it seems to show is if we're talking right now, let's say first about cocaine and ecstasy, mm-hmm. if it's something that you would consider doing, you're probably already doing it. Mm-hmm. And there's just another extra couple of people who say if it were legal, I'd mm. give it a go. LSD, people who've had cl- among people who've had class A drugs, 26%, so one in four have had LSD and the same proportion would if it were legal. So that would double among people who are willing to take class A drugs. And then the ones that are totally just off the table for everyone are heroin, crack cocaine, meth, and crystal meth. So among people who say they've tried a class A drug, just one in 15 of them have tried crack cocaine. One in 20 have had heroin, meth, or methamphetamine, also known as crystal meth. And three quarters of them said they wouldn't try any of them, at least. So it's really interesting, speaking to what we were just talking about in terms of what is the difference between all these drugs? Do we really understand the relative Mm. harm that even just this label class A drugs doesn't seem to match how Mm. people perceive whether they would or wouldn't take them if they were legal and also it seems to suggest that as we sort of go back full circle to the cannabis discussion mm. um perhaps providing a regulatory framework via legalization perhaps wouldn't encourage people to take mm. it more and therefore mm. the benefits might be significantly higher mm. and then if it were legal you know to take for example ecstasy then the regulation could stop a lot of the deaths. I think a lot of, from what I see as a journalist, from what we report on, a lot of the deaths that we see, which are to do with drugs, are 18-year-olds or young people mm. taking ecstasy for the first time or who who aren't experienced mm. and take a huge dose because mm. they don't know, like they take a, a whole big ecstasy pill because mm. they don't know, they don't have the education to know that that's far more than your body can cope with. Because you know not to go out to the pub for the first time and drink two bottles of vodka, basically. You just know not to do that. that. (laughs) But broadly, no, you know you're likely Mm. to be in a bit of trouble if you do that. I guess, yeah, definitely you know what would happen. You're more aware of the effects. Even if you do it, you're consciously Mm. knowing this is going to make me throw up, collapse, you know, but Mm. ecstasy, you might just not know. And if you buy a pill from a drug dealer, you have no idea how strong it is. And who's going to tell you, oh, be careful, like cut it, cut it up into bits, especially your first time. I think one of the things we miss quite often, though, is that um, sat here doing this podcast, I like to think we're all sort of reasonably intelligent. We're looking at things logically, but that's not the way people behave. Mm. And the going back to the unintended consequences thing, while you and I or all four of us might think, well, that's not what I'd want. I wouldn't want to take a high strength ecstasy pill. Uh, for some people, that's really attractive, mm. is not knowing what's going to happen um, <laughs> yeah, and the risk true. of it. And we've seen this with goading amongst peer groups. You know, can you take... We do it with alcohol. You know, mm. I, can, yeah. I can all me mm. booze. Um, and the same thing Down happens with pills. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Is uh, Are you man enough? Are you woman enough to take, um, you know, the sky blue tablet and um, still dance? Uh, so I think we've got to be really careful around thinking that education, pill testing, pill testing is a thing at the moment, and I'm really in favour of it, Mm. but it's not a panacea. You know, just testing the strength of pills doesn't reduce deaths necessarily. It may make a small impact, Mm -hmm. but as I say, people behave completely illogically and irrationally um, in the pursuit of fun. Are you aware of pill reports, Ian? I am, yeah. Great idea. (laughs) So this is a a (laughs) user-generated website Mm. where people take ecstasy pills and describe their experience in real time. Oh, wow. <laughs> so what? people say, I bought a, a uh, pill in, or, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in London shaped like a Superman. Uh, I took half of it. <laughs> One hour later, I'm starting to feel like this. And they write down reports of what it's like. Mm. And it's interesting because <laughs> I was looking at some of them. Um, it's quite 
to, I mean, to my eyes, it seems quite silly, but it's a lot, it's quite caring in some ways. It's saying, yeah. I took this, I've taken a lot of ecstasy before. If you buy this, be really careful, yeah. only take a small dose. It's quite altruistic, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Do they specify where they got it yes. from? They'll say they'll take some um sometimes take pictures, say what colour it is, what they're shaped like and where they bought it and when. Wow. So do we think if people knew what the benefits of taking drugs are, mm. they might be more likely to take them more sensibly? So for example, if you know that a glass of red wine is going to make you feel a bit chilled out and stuff like mm. that, mm-hmm. as we do, as we culturally know, because we see it all the time then that's more might be my why you might be more inclined to drink a glass of red wine than a bottle of red wine. Mm. Um, so I guess in do, do we think yeah more education would encourage people to take drugs more but more sensibly and also what are the benefits of taking drugs? What are the like we should talk about mm. that right? There are benefits yeah, right definitely and well there must be because millions of people yeah. are using them so mm. they they're not trying to inflict um, some kind of injury on themselves deliberately. Um, if you know if you get millions of people using something there has to be a benefit. You know, it's a no-brainer. Um, and I think the I, I'm not sure is the honest answer. I, I'm not sure if we explained what the benefits are, more or less people would use them. But what I do know is mm. all the information from government bodies or official bodies at the moment leans and is biased towards harm. And the problem with that is, is apart from being dishonest, uh, is it lacks credibility. So... I know this may sound bizarre, but if if we're trying to get more people to be vaccinated for measles and rubella, um, I think, bizarrely, um, having more credible information on drugs would help us with those kind of issues because people are more inclined to believe them, read them, take them on board if they think they're balanced, honest and credible. So the danger is at the moment we're in the worst possible position where people switch off or don't try and access uh, sites like Frank, which is the main government Mm. website, uh, because it's all leaning towards uh, the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's not clearly that doesn't match people's experience. Talk to Frank does say, so I I was looking at this before, I looked um, specifically at cocaine Mm -hmm. um, and it tells you how it looks, tastes and smells. How do people take it? Yeah. Which could kind of be seen as you know, advice uh, um, might kind of encourage people to take it. Um, And it also says how it feels. So for cocaine specifically, it says taking cocaine can make you feel happy, excited, wide awake, confident on top of your game. So it does talk about the pleasurable effects. It also talks about the the risks um, and the kind of side effects, so to speak. Um, but the, the no, no, that's really there. welcome. That that mm. happened, I think, just prior to Christmas. I, I don't know who it was with um, in public health England that's responsible mm. for that, but they did try and balance it a bit, which is great. Mm. Um, but I think we all kind of know it's not. I'm not sure my kids go to a government website to check information. Um, you know, I think they'd rather believe their mate Billy or mm. uh, Jane or whoever <laughs> it is. You know, what I mean. So I, th- I think there is again a, a false sense of security that believing just by educating kids that they'll make the right decisions or even adults I guess help us. the danger of educating kids about drugs as well as as previously discussed the education has to be pretty good and am I convinced that education in our school system around drugs would be yeah. good I'm not convinced at all or, or do you we, we certainly know what one of the unintended consequences consequences of educating school children about drugs is is we create curiosity in the ones that weren't yeah. curious yes and that's not what we want um so that that's a, a definite hazard about not being 
not thinking clearly about the age at which we begin to educate or introduce children to information about drugs. But I do think that, like, I guess bringing it back slightly to the point that you made mm. about um, psychosis and the research around cannabis and psychosis and that actually, like, racism plays a strong part mm. in the way that we view this. The social side of I mean, there, there was the war on drugs, right? There yeah. have been enormous campaigns to change the way that we think about drugs. And I think particularly in a, in a, in a world in which they are a crime to to take, to possess, to grow to whatever else it may mm. be, where people aren't properly informed on the effects that it has on your health, what ends up happening is the opinions that we form that display themselves in these surveys that we're talking about are based purely on, on what? On cultural messaging, on political messaging mm -hmm. that is inevitably loaded you know yeah, with propaganda these, yeah and there was like yeah. i was looking into in terms of cannabis in the u.s there was some really interesting history of how uh in the 1920s the price of alcohol was put up and marijuana was positioned as like an interesting as an attractive alternative mm. and there were lots of places called tea pads set up around new york mm -hmm. where you could go in and it sounds a bit like some kind of a sort of cannabis cafe mm. um but the cannabis was being brought in by mexican immigrants and when the great depression kicked off and resentment towards mexicans kind of increased yeah. suddenly marijuana was being linked really strongly in studies right. to crime and violence and all of these awful yeah. things but actually more out of you know like xenophobia against the mexican immigrants mm. than anything else you know and then when it came back into the hands of like white middle-class america mm. it was put into a different class of drugs and actually no not no longer seen as something so bad so it, long story short i think in the history of this all around the world there are huge like socio-political choices that are made about how these drugs are framed mm. that as long as it remains illegal and people aren't taught about just i don't know just taking out all of this kind of mystery around it in the sense yeah. of rebellion and just teaching you just a tiny bit of magic mushrooms does this a tiny bit of cocaine does mm. that it, it I, I do think it would really change things in terms of the way that it's framed so that having a glass of wine isn't seen as taking drugs in the same way that having three bottles of wine looks at something worrying could we imagine a world in which having a little bit of magic mushrooms or a little bit of cocaine isn't seen as this yeah. crazy thing i don't know in terms of intended consequence do we think um um it would become easier to treat addiction if um, drugs were legalized. Definitely, because there's there's a stigma. There still is a stigma with drug use, um, and the, there's a, a ranking to that. You know, to for a mum to say I'm using crack cocaine compared to a stockbroker saying I'm using a line of coke. The, mm. There's a clear difference in our attitudes towards that, and who's behaving responsibility, oh, who's functional. That really, is true. Uh, though. Yeah. So I think if you know. Again, a regulated market I don't think solves everything, but it does help to reduce stigma. And stigma is a big barrier to seeking help and getting treatment in a timely way. Right. So, <laughs> so where did we end? <laughs> I feel like I've come to the end of this discussion not having not changed my opinion on that initial mm -hmm. question, which perhaps, you know, would you legalize cannabis? Oh, really? I, I don't think I have, but I feel like... Even though the numbers seem to show that legalization isn't, doesn't make a difference about whether people would take drugs. Yes, but I think what I would want is for someone, for our government, for example, to take the issue more seriously and commission more research and actually present some more mm. valid information. And then we can, it feels like any, it does feel still like any decision we make would be uninformed mm. Mm. or not as informed as I personally <laughs> would want it to be. But as I, I say, I like the status point. quo. Yeah. You know, the, the numbers that you said about how many people have tried class A drugs, to my ears, were very high, mm. even was, though we don't, very know that high. much about it so you know we're people we're experimenting with drugs even though we're not very well informed about them also we yeah. just don't like if one in three people are taking class so what was it one in one in eleven one in eleven um, have yeah. taken, a class, have a, taken drug. a class drug 
One like, in seven among younger people. It's just not part of day-to-day conversation, is it? Like you talk about like, smoking and alcohol. You don't go to university, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. no, you are. But, but, but now it's sort of outside, Depends, yeah. in a sort of work environment, I guess, in a slightly more... Because <laughs> um, it's one true. in seven among 25 to 49-year-olds. So that's definitely right in the work environment. Kind definitely, of age. yeah. <laughs> it's, that's just, I'm staggered by that. I'm really surprised. I don't know. It, it's just really odd, isn't it, to have millions of people doing this day in, day out. Mm. And it's slightly under the radar. Yeah. It's a lot under the radar, isn't it? So, um, and maybe that's part of the attraction is it's cheeky, it's naughty, mm-hmm. it's my dirty little secret. Um, or it's our dirty, dirty little secret. You know, it's yeah. something that bonds us, that um, unites us socially. But particularly because I think coming back to the work environment thing, I would imagine that there are many offices where you definitely wouldn't talk about it during the day. But then when you go to, the, uh, to a bar or whatever, people will whip out cocaine yeah. or whatever and they mm. won't see that as a crit and then mm. they're like great now we're in the that's space true. where we can talk about yeah. it you know so, so I think under the radar is you Gov there so, <laughs> <laughs> so I think we're unin- uninformed secretive drug users this yeah. nation of un- under-informed under-informed under-informed, under-informed and under the radar yeah. <laughs> <laughs> under-informed <laughs> secret druggies brackets but it's not necessarily a bad thing <laughs> close brackets close rolls brackets. off the tongue <laughs> yes. and collectively that's a good place to be is to acknowledge what we don't know mm. um, I, I think once you start there um, it's a it's a good honest place to be because then you don't um, start propagating um, and amplifying um, you know so called facts based on quite dodgy evidence mm. Britain is a nation of under-informed secret drug users. I think that sounds sounds, sounds like sounds like our great nation. Yeah. It does. <laughs> Thanks for making it all the way to the end of Britain is a nation of. How can they get in touch, Matilda? You can follow us on Twitter at Yahoo News UK, or you can find us on Facebook under Yahoo UK and Ireland, or email us on Yahoo News UK at oath.com. And join us again for another deep dive into very British behaviours. 